Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor of the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. Now, normally we come out with a new episode at the end of the working week, but this week with the emergency meetings of the UN General Assembly, we're bringing you a special update. And a reminder that my colleagues in Beijing, Brussels, New York, Washington DC, and here in Hong Kong are filing stories around the clock to our website at scmp.com. In this episode, you'll hear analysis of the tectonic shift in policy by Germany and the European Parliament in the past 72 hours that has had huge economic and strategic impact on Russia, but also has huge implications for China's relationship with Europe and its geopolitical strategies. And as usual, about four hours after I finished interviewing our reporters in Beijing and Brussels, came news most relevant to our podcast. Late last night, our time came the important news that China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi had been on the phone to Ukraine's Foreign Minister, offering to host peace negotiations. We are, of course, following that up as we head towards a crucial, if not symbolic, vote at the United Nations titled simply, Aggression in Ukraine. There is much more to come on that. But you're also going to hear from our tech desk editor, Joe Sin. Two years after our colleague John Carter declared on this podcast that if the US removed China from the SWIFT system, it would be seen as a declaration of war, you're going to hear how Chinese banks and analysts are reacting now that Russia has been banned from the Brussels-based SWIFT system. What does this mean for China's banks and its plans to build its own yuan payment system as an alternative to SWIFT? And beyond that, how are China's big tech companies, multinational companies with extensive markets in the US and Europe, balancing the push for sanctions from the West with the Beijing government's refusal to condemn Russia's invasion, as well as condemning the use of sanctions? We're seeing brief moments of solidarity with Ukraine popping up on Chinese social media before being removed, even brief flashes of empathy on China's state TV. But after Joe Biden's emphatic State of the Union speech denouncing Russia's invasion and support for the people of Ukraine, how will Beijing react? Can Xi Jinping still position himself as a broker of negotiated peace? On with the show. Once again, I have Europe correspondent Finbar Birmingham on the line in Brussels and Majun in Beijing. Thank you both for your time on another busy day. Finbar, can I start with you? There are many things about this war in Ukraine that people are describing as unprecedented. Last week, you told us how the EU had shocked many with its resolve, but that was only just the beginning. What's happened over the weekend that we need to know about? Yeah, I think that resolve has has sort of been injected with steroids. Um, we've all been shocked by, I think, the progression in the European solidarity on this and the fact that they've been able to all agree on the toughest sanctions in 
in history. We, we heard this information yesterday. Last Thursday, uh, the European Council, which is the leader of the 27 nations, uh, met and they were addressed by video conference by Volodymyr Zelensky, who's the Ukrainian president. This was told to us was the turning point. This is when the U- EU decided to get tough. Zelensky told them that uh, this may be the last time they ever see him. They said, there is a target on my head. There's a target on my back. I am the number one target. This may be the last time we ever speak. My family are here with me. This may be the last time you ever see my family. And for the European Union leaders in the room, this was absolutely shocking. It really brought home the severity of the situation. Um, the fact that this guy was was really sort of putting himself out there um, emotionally, but in control of his emotions as well, we were told. The next day, they decided to sanction Putin and Lavrov, which was at that point a huge escalation in their severity of their sanctions. The day after that, everything was on the table. Uh, We talked about SWIFT before being the nuclear option. Germany, which had been the last holdout, dropped its opposition to SWIFT. And then suddenly everything was in play. They sanctioned the Russian central bank. They decided they would freeze the assets held in the G7 along with partners of the Russian Central Bank. Now that, if SWIFT is the nuclear option, that is the turbo nuclear option. The Russian government has 640 billion US dollars of reserves held in various currencies, half of which are held in the G7. They have been building up these reserves for a rainy day so that when, if and when something like this does happen, uh, as it happened in 2014, uh, they have a buffer. They have a sort of rainy day fund. Um, Half of that is now unavailable to them because European entities have been banned from doing transactions with the central bank, meaning they can't repatriate the money that's overseas. That's huge. And I want to point to something that happened on Sunday as a marker of how this situation has rapidly evolved. Just a week ago, Germany was being criticised for being incredibly weak on this. They were blocking other European countries from sending German-made weaponry to the to the Ukrainians. Um, they were holding out on SWIFT, as we said. Um, f- fast forward a week, and we are really down the rabbit hole with Germany. We're, we're not in Kansas anymore, not to mix my metaphors too much, but um, the German uh, Chancellor on Sunday, Olaf Scholz, over the course of about an hour, tore up 40 years of German foreign and defence policy. The government decided that they would start arming Ukraine directly, as well as stopping the blocks on indirect arms. They decided that any opposition to financial and economic sanctions against Russia would be dropped. They decided to bolster their defence spending to 2% of GDP and start a 100 billion euro fund for defence spend. All of these things were absolutely unheard of a week ago, less than a week ago. Now, if you think about how this relates to China, Germany has been the bastion of a strong EU-China relationship. And it's often pointed as a a sort of soft underbelly. You have more hawkish voices in the European Union. Germany has always been sort of dismissed as only wanting to sell Volkswagens in in China. It only wants to sell cars. It only wants to sell, you know, BASF has huge plants. That's all the Germans are interested in. But I think on Sunday, the needle was well and truly moved in seismic fashion. Germany showed that it can move much more quickly than anybody ever anticipated this is not directed at China, but there are lessons for, 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 for China, I suppose, that they shouldn't 
maybe um, you know underestimate the, what how th- how quickly things can change. Now, in that same debate in the Bundestag, where Olaf Scholz delivered his speech, German politicians were standing up and saying, "Where's China on this? We want to hear what China is saying. China needs to come out clearly, and it needs to condemn the action." Uh, we have more and more conversations in Europe about how much did China know about the um, invasion in advance. Uh, our report, reporters in Washington have backed up New York Times reporters, which said that China was given U.S. intelligence signaling there would be an invasion and passed it on to Moscow. On that point, I would add that the U.S. had also been telling the Ukrainians and the Europeans that there was an invasion in the works and they ignored the intel as well. But look, there's a bit of pressure building up. Everybody is watching very, very closely and the Europeans have finally found their backbone. So it makes for an interesting dynamic. Which, of course, brings us to Beijing. My June, yourself, Kinling Lo, the, the other members of the Beijing Bureau for the SEMP, are attending the daily press conferences, are following the statements as they come out. It really does seem that Beijing is trying to pursue this delicate balancing act of insisting on talks but refusing to be drawn on sanctions. What is the latest from foreign ministry spokespeople? I think uh, the foreign ministry has still uh, largely uh, stick to uh, their positions, which is refusing to condemn Russia, uh, call for de-escalation of the situation, call for dialogue, uh, but in general expressing a respect to uh, the sovereignty and security uh, of all countries. And third, of course, you know, uh, uh, when it when when it has extra time, uh, would also go ahead uh, blaming uh, U.S. Prov- Provoking uh, the situation. Uh, yesterday, I think uh, uh, th- th- that's why yesterday the uh, foreign ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin's comment has uh, has uh, raised some eyebrows, and you know, uh, people were uh, wondering uh, whether this represents a somewhat uh, small adjustment of China's stance. So basically, this is what Wang Wenbin said yesterday: sovereignty uh, and uh, territorial integrity of all countries uh, needs to be respected and maintained. The UN Charter needs to be re- uh, maintained and this is China's consistent uh, stance. But at the same time, uh, China has always held uh, that the security of one country cannot build upon the basis of uh, damage to the security of another country and uh, no country uh, should seek absolute military advantage and absolute security at the expense of other countries' security and sovereignty. I think this is an uh, interesting uh, comment because it uh, it adds to like a there's like a, a few phrases that it that it used for the first time, which is uh, no country should seek uh, absolute uh, military advantage and absolute security at, at the expense of other countries' uh, sovereignty and security, but. Uh, because first, uh, China has never, even in this uh, somewhat nuanced comment, China did not name Russia and it did not name which country is trying to pursue uh, absolute military advantage. And uh, a few exchanges with uh, people in, in, in Beijing, a uh, long time uh, China watchers would say that uh, these, these kind of phrases could be used to uh, denounce both the uh, Eastern enlargement of NATO and uh, Russia's aggression. Uh, so there, it's not completely clear uh, whether China is criticizing uh, Russia 
But I think it's becoming increasingly uh, uh, notable to all people that uh, China uh, uh, did have some reservations about uh, Russia's uh, action. And for instance, China abstained from a few votes in the United Nations. And it also said it upheld the uh, sovereignty of all countries. So in this sense, I, I do not think that China is making a major shift of its stance, but just a, a tiny uh, adjustment in its narrative. But I mean, just like what Finbar said, if we put this into a broader context, uh, that Germany was shifting its post-war uh, foreign policy line. And um, countries like Finland were talking about uh, having a discussion about joining NATO. So among all this sea change uh, of policies in Europe, how significant is this tiny change of word uh, by a uh, spokesman of foreign uh, ministry in China? Uh, I am pretty, uh, I have, uh, I'm pretty uncertain about it. Really very well put there by, by my Juna. I read a, a blog yesterday by Ian Johnson and the Council for Foreign Relations, Council on Foreign Relations, which sort of summed up the dichotomy quite nicely in one line. I think it takes great skill to sum, sum up such a complex uh, narrative in, in a single sentence. But he said, even though China wants to position itself as essentially neutral and advocates dialogue, its positions are actually a remarkable defense of Russia and reflect strengthening China-Russia ties. So I think like... As my June points out, these statements are sort of like they're two sides of a coin. On one end, they keep asking for dialogue, keep asking to, to resolve this around the diplomatic table. On the other hand, they keep talking about the, the aggressive NATO eastward expansion and so on. And I think more and more of this language is, is being picked up. We had a story late last night, Kinling Lo, a reporter in Beijing, was at a ceremony in Shanghai to mark the 50th anniversary of the Shanghai communique. And um, former US Treasury Secretary was essentially telling China to get off the fence. This is the moment when nations of the world respecting international order are joining together, condemning Russia's illegal attack on Ukraine. China must decide where to stand and understand that the bilateral relationship with the US will only become more strained in the absence of a clear choice to stand with intervention. I was on a webinar yesterday with Kurt Campbell, Joe Biden's top um, Asia-Pacific official, and Gunnar Wiegand, who is the Asia-Pacific Managing Director in the European Union. They were saying similar. They, well, Kurt Campbell certainly was, was saying similar. He was confirming that they had warned China in advance of the invasion and that they were wa wanting China to, to play a more productive role, more constructive role in this. Gunnar Wiegand, whose consummate diplomat didn't go as, as his language is certainly couched in more diplomatic terms than, than Campbell, was saying that, look, we need to keep the lines of it, communication with Beijing open. However, we can't help but notice that in the in the February fourth communication, this was the first time that Russia ever recognised China's uh, officially China's grievances in the South China Sea, and China essentially gave tacit backing to to Russia's uh, territorial positioning in, in in Europe and its its views vis a vis European security. So I think we are sort of um, China keeps straddling this fence. Um, Really awkwardly, as as Kurt Campbell said yesterday, China occupies an awkward nexus on Russia, and it's becoming more and more apparent. It's one of those things where the the, the more you you don't say anything, the, the the louder those words become. Everybody's really wanting China to 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 get off the fence. 
um, and to come out and, and, and condemn it. Honestly, I, I can't see that happening in, in a month of Sundays. It doesn't seem like it's 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 gonna gonna be um, but gonna be happening anytime soon. But I do sort of buy into that theory that this is an incredibly uncomfortable situation from for China, which I suppose then digs up the spectre of how much did did she and, and how much did China know in advance? Again, we probably will never know. Uh, I would like to also offer a little bit of context here as I was having a, a, such a discussion with a, a Chinese uh, official and um, he sort of wanted to present me this context uh, as if uh, where are the other countries are standing and he gave this number like uh, the, the West the developed economies, if you count the population, like they do not represent the majority of the world, which was what uh, uh, the Communist Party's Yang Jiechi used to tell Tony Blinken during the Alaska talks. So if we look at the uh, developing countries, the major uh, developing economies, the BRICS countries, for example, uh, countries including Brazil, uh, India, uh, and uh, uh, South, uh, South, South Africa. And I also looked it up what, uh, what Pakistan said. So all these countries, they were all pretty much in line with China in the vagueness uh, uh, in this situation. They did not uh, denounce uh, Russia's uh, aggression. Uh, they mostly just in generally uh, call for de-escalation and talk, uh, call for talks. But however, um, I, I would also like to point out that uh, uh, none of these countries have uh, such close ties uh, with uh, Russia uh, in terms of uh, uh, security. And none of these countries uh, Signed a joint statement uh, so uh, with Russia uh, so so soon before uh, the aggression took place. So they are under a different spot in terms of international uh, pressure. That's interesting. You raised that point, Marjun. Of course, India has a very long-running uh, relationship with the defence industry of Russia and a bit of an economic relationship as well. What I thought was interesting is that we talk about, you know, what's going on in Ukraine in diplomatic terms, uh, you know, about incursions, uh, but what people are seeing all day, every day, all night, every night are horrible civilian casualties uh, in, in the cities across Ukraine. This is seen as one of the first wars that is broadcast via social media, and it has really changed uh, how people are seeing the war. They're seeing letters from Russian soldiers back to their mothers. Uh, they're seeing these people on the front line. They're seeing, of course, the Ukrainian president doing selfie videos saying, I'm still alive, you know, I haven't left yet. I'm curious, has there been any change in media coverage for China's state media? Has there been any change in what's going on social media? Uh, not much, but I I do think the state media is trying to play up the tune, uh, trying to uh, uh, strike a tune of uh, somewhat up optimism in this situation. For instance, uh, the talks uh, between Russian and Ukraine delegates uh, yesterday. I don't think a lot of people, for instance, in Europe or, or in the US thought much about the talks, but uh, the, that talk uh, gained a lot of traction in China's state media. But if we, of course, if we look at the details, we knew that the, the, the talks, it, it was never meant to be successful because the Russian delegate uh, was led by a former a cultural minister of Russia. And there's uh, there are also people joking that, oh, this might be a bad joke uh, by Putin, sort of making fun of Zelensky, former role as a, uh, as a as an actor. Now you have a former cultural minister uh, to lead the talks with you. I, I do see the state media trying to uh, 
strike a tone of more like optimism about like a just sort of saying hopefully this will go away soon but other than that i uh the coverage has not changed much which is uh you know trying to uh, minimize the discussions and try not to uh get into too many details about what's going on in the on the battlefield of course i've called you both together on the line this week because he's been Two, if not three, in very important meetings for the United Nations. It was the Security Council, an emergency meeting of the General Assembly and the UN Human Rights Council. Majuni rightly pointed out that India has abstained from votes. But FIBA, was there comments made at the Human Rights Council that we need to know about? Well, I just wanted to, to point out that this is a, um, while China has been abstaining at the UN in, in New York, this is the UN, uh, sorry, Security Council and the General Assembly, it was one of only five uh, members of the UN Human Rights Council to actually vote against holding an emergency, um, an urgent debate on Ukraine, a company, company in which China finds itself there, Cuba, Eritrea, Russia, of course, uh, Venezuela, and China. Um, India abstained on that one. Also, the UAE abstained. So India, um, China and the UAE had been the three countries that had abstained at the human at the sorry UN Security Council. Both of those maintained their abstention at the Human Rights Council, but China actively voted against it. Um, so, you know, where does that leave, you know, China's perceived neutrality on this if it's blocking a debate on this at the Human Rights Council. I mean, China and the Human Rights Council have a checkered history. You know, it's it's often hauled over the coals because of what's happening in Xinjiang and 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 Tibet and so on. Um, there's no love lost between China and some some other members of the Human Rights Council. But still, it's, I thought it was just a little interesting um, uh, detail which was worth mentioning. Fimba Birmingham, my June. We'll see your reports coming up on scp.com. Thank you very much for your time. Followers of this podcast will recognise the voice of my next guest. For years, he was the co-anchor of this podcast. He's now the tech desk editor for the South China Morning Post. Jason, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jared. Jason, there's been a lot of discussion about how China might be of assistance to Russia now the bans on Russia's use of the SWIFT payment system has been put in place, what's the reality of that? Uh, well, Jared, I think we have to start from the basics. Well, there are certainly lots of uh, talks about, you know, when the uh, US and the uh, European Union and uh, many liberal democracies start to sanction Russia, China were becoming um, facilitator for uh, Russia finance and economy. Uh, but this has some, uh, some understandings. First of all, SWIFT is a messaging system. It's not about uh, money flows. And so basically, if two banks want to uh, wire money, they use a SWIFT system to communicate with each other. So, but it's not uh, related to the, to the real money. I think China would be very, very careful not to be uh, too deeply involved or to be perceived as, uh, as helping Russia to uh, manage the sanctions. And I think the Chinese government has made it very clear that China is opposed sanctions, but China is not going to say, if you sanction Russia, I'm going to help Russia. This is, a, this is certainly uh, not part of the official position. So uh, if you can see the reaction from the uh, Chinese banks, I mean, some Chinese state-owned banks have already started to take some actions to manage their own risks, of course. And if they are seen as uh, uh, helping Russia to avoid the sanctions, they will be in trouble. Bank of China, Singapore, or you know, Bank of China in, uh, in mainland China, they already started to take some uh, measures uh, to manage their uh, Russia risks. 
So uh, it's really difficult to say that you know China this time will become the financer for Russia or will become the money back for for Russia. We'll write an open check uh, to Vladimir Putin saying, if you can't get the dollars from them, I have dollars, brother. I, I don't think this is going to happen. Justino, I, I do recall the late, great John Carter talking on this year podcast roughly two years ago about how if the US decided to cut China from the SWIFT system, it would be seen as an act of war. That was at the height of the you know Trump anti-China trade war uh, hype. But what are you hearing from analysts and finance experts in mainland China and here in Hong Kong watching this extraordinary level of sanction? You know, what are people saying? This, this is extraordinary. I mean, uh, Jared, uh, previously, like Iran or uh, North Korea were cut off from SWIFT. Uh, they're tiny uh, economies and not so connected to the rest of the world. But we are talking about uh, Russia, a G20 uh, economy. It's, uh, it's the world's largest uh, kind of export of energy. So this, this is big. And for many analysts, they're saying this is a this is a nuclear kind of uh, financial weapon, <laughs> a financial nuclear war, nuclear bomb. But according to Chinese analysts, uh, for instance, Wang Yongli, the former uh, Bank of China vice president, who, who was a border uh, of director at SWIFT, and saying you know SWIFT's uh, uh, role is also has to be taken in a broader context. You know, it's more of like a symptom instead of uh, itself. So this is more of a sign of economic decoupling and the cutting off all the financial and economic relations. This is really, really bad. This is almost like the carry of an economic war. And also, but if we look at carefully about the, the sanctions, we can see that uh, some banks, you know, there are some exceptions, right? Uh, if the banks are handling energy payments, uh, apparently looking after the interest between Germany and, uh, and Russia can be exempted from this, uh, uh, this sanction. So, yeah, troubles has just the beginning because it's unprecedented. No one really can say now, give a, give a number or give a size, how, how bad it will be. But everyone knows that it is bad and it, it, it will be getting worse and worse uh, for, uh, for, for Russian financial system and for the Russian economy. Can I ask you, have, are you hearing any discussion about, you know, watching what's happened with the SWIFT system? Has that spurred any you know, enthusiasm or energy in mainland China to you know, develop a digital yuan or develop a Chinese version of SWIFT? Oh, I would say this uh, just to confirm the long-standing view in China that China has to reduce its reliance on these systems that is uh, dominated by, by the Western or dominated particularly by the United States. Uh, if you look at China's efforts to build up its own uh, payment system or its own kind of uh, reserve currency system, it actually started in 2008 instead of 2022. After the, after the global financial crisis and China can see that its, uh, its economy size, economic size is big enough, but you know, the yuan is still very, very limited. So you know, China aspired that one day the yuan can become uh, not a challenger to the U.S. dollar, but at least to become a reasonable regional currency that was a reasonable influence. But so far, I think the progress is quite limited because of the capital controls, etc. But still, uh, this sanctions, this sanction, uh, latest sanction against Russia, clearly send a message to China that you know these are the potential risks. Remember, you know, uh, one or two years ago when. During the during the Hong Kong protest, there were lots of uh, discussions of uh, whether whether the U.S. will have this financial sanction against China, and and also uh, less than a year ago, we were also talking about whether China is going to apply its anti-sanction law in Hong Kong, you know, forcing the forcing all the banks to to pick up a site. 
you know, all these things you can see that this is a this is a, a quite quite a serious. And now this sanction is against Russia. China is uh, uh, is not uh, uh, part of this uh, this Russia. And it's, but but the risk for China is there. So it's clearly sending a message to to the Chinese government that they have to pay more attention to to the risks because they are real. The risks are real. You see, if Russia started a war against uh, uh, Ukraine. And then the, the the sanctions came. And previously, people were saying like, "Oh no, this is going, this is not going to happen." You know, the Germany will never agree to it. Um, there will be so many interested involved, so this is not going to happen. But it it happened. So this is a remote risk, but the Russian uh, sanctions has certainly brought that uh, remote risk much closer to Beijing's door. That's very interesting. Now, let me just turn to, you know, the, the tech industry and China's massive tech industry. We are starting to see some reports that Washington is perhaps hoping to get China's tech companies to get on board with sanctions against Russian companies and to stop trade of technology. What do we know about that? Well, this is another very interesting question. How Chinese tech companies are going to respond uh, to this uh, to this sanction? I mean, on one hand, the Russian market has become an important kind of overseas market for many Chinese tech companies, Huawei, Xiaomi, you name it. On the other hand, they also, you know, globalized the companies. Huawei is already under U.S. sanctions, and Xiaomi is not. But are they are they really going to like take the risks of facing economic sanctions from the Western market for sake of the Russian market? So this is a very uh, it will put many Chinese tech companies in a very difficult position, and that's possibly why you can see that you know. Four or five days after the after the war started, basically no Chinese company has come out to have a statement to to make their position clear. I think for most the 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 reasonable response for from the Chinese tech companies is just you know to carefully study the risks and then do like what kind of business we can do, what kind of business we cannot do, and also measures uh, carefully the risk and the returns. Just to give you two examples, for instance, DT is one example. DT announced I think just a few days before the war started, saying. Uh, we are going to pull out from uh, Russia and the Kazakhstan markets because uh, because uh, the market there is certainly not very good and you know not enough profits or revenue to support our operation. And then, just a few days later, it make a 180 degree you know completely revoke its previous decision, saying we will committed to the Russian market when still operations there. And no one knows what really happened. And some analysts are saying, you know, because uh, TT's pullout from the Russian market has met some uh, opposition on Chinese internet at home saying, how can TT be so close to the US and to the Western powers? You know, even to say before they announced sanctions, you just, you know, abandon uh, the, the Russian market. And so this is a very awkward position for 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 DT Chuxing, which is a New York listed Chinese taxi hailing company, right? Also, also another point is the Lenovo. Okay, Lenovo has been, I think, among the first to saying, you know, as a, as a as a global tech company, I have to follow. You know, I have also to go shoulder by shoulder with other other tech companies. So they announced that they are going to reduce their. Uh, exports to Russia. And immediately there are backlash in, in China saying, how can you learn of you know, a company rooted in China, you know, being so aggressive in uh, implementing the sanctions against uh, uh, Russia? So from these two examples, the, the two public cases, you can see that for many Chinese tech companies, they have to be very, very careful, walk the fine line, because Chinese government is saying, we oppose sanctions, okay? I don't want to see Chinese companies that publicly go against the Chinese government position. On the other hand, you know, they have to, because they, apart from uh, Russia, they have their markets in US and Europe. 
you know, they have to care about uh, the possible influences if you're seeing defying the sanctions or even deliberately help Russia to avoid these sanctions. So this is a, this is a quite interesting topic. Uh, let's wait and see. I, I think more and more uh, the statements were coming out in the coming days or weeks. I get the feeling some of these Chinese tech companies are, are using what they call strategic ambiguity. <laughs> yes, exactly. Josine, I know you're very busy. Thank you once again very much for your time. And we will see your reports and the tech team's reports on scmp.com as they come in. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jared. That's all for this emergency session of the China Geopolitics Podcast. By the time you've finished listening to this, something has no doubt shifted or changed. It's a good time to go and check the front page of scmp.com for updates. We'll be bringing you another full episode later this week in the wake of the UN vote, as well as taking a closer look at the concerns, not protests, concerns, being raised by different academics in mainland China concerning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We will, of course, be following very closely any updates on the offer from Beijing to broker peace negotiations between the democratically elected government of Vladimir Zelensky and Vladimir Putin's Russian regime, which Xi Jinping has pledged a limitless relationship. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And as we say here in Hong Kong, stay positive, test negative, keep your distance, but stay in touch. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course. And I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.